uh, as we do and we prepare in a few moments, we're going to read from Acts 21, 17 through 26. We'll read there together. But before we do, I want to start this way. God's plan for displaying His glory to the world is in this room right now. Just think about that. Look around. Look around this room right now. And yes, that's right. You are witnessing here in this room a display of God's glory to our community and to the world. People who aren't just like you. People who don't think like you. Don't act like you. They don't dress like you. I mean, the guy preaching to you right now is wearing penny loafers. Does anybody still wear penny loafers? Like what <laughs> in the world is happening, right? People who don't come from the same background as you. They don't laugh at the same things that you laugh at. Some of you have not laughed at me this morning, and I'm taking note of that. Right? They don't have the same sense of humor. They don't have the same... Uh, they're drawn to the same hobbies, the same interests. And on and on and on we can go. But in this room, as you look around, this is God's display of His glory, not just to our community, not just to the world, but to the entire cosmos. I'm so glad that God doesn't think like us. He doesn't need all of the celebrity and cultural capital gathered together in the same room to get glory. Instead, what He's done, and Ephesians 3.10 bears this out, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That God's boast are the trophies of grace sitting to your right and to your left, in front and behind you, that He's brought together to make a people for Himself. And He says, this is my boast. Nothing else in all of the universe can accomplish this except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that all over the globe right now are our brothers and sisters gathered together worshiping Christ Jesus and making the ultimate truth claim of all the universe, Jesus is Lord. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a glorious thing. Francis Schaeffer said, Christian community is the final apologetic for the gospel. What the world would see gives credence to what we proclaim. That the fruit of the gospel, what we're witnessing right now, will give credibility to what we say when we proclaim the gospel. And so in the text before us today, we're witnessing the early church navigating the difficulties of living out their gospel unity. And although their context and their circumstances are much different from ours, their challenges are not all that different from ours. We still face the same challenges today. 
And so with these things in mind, let's turn our attention to God's Word and let's read Acts 21, verses 27 through 26. I mean, 27 through 36 together. I'm not reading backwards. Don't worry about that. 27 through... Oh, yeah, you're right, Ken. I'm so, so messed up. Let me just look at my notes. We're reading 21... Verse 17 through 26. I promise I slept some this week. All right, here we go. Acts 21, verse 17. This is God's word. We had come to Jerusalem. The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men And the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This concludes our reading of God's word. Let us hear it. Let us receive it. May we believe it. May it take root and bear fruit in our lives for his glory, for our good. Brothers and sisters, here we come to a point in the passage that is somewhat difficult, in my opinion, for us to work through, for us to look at and see what is going on. And as we just said a moment ago, what we're witnessing is the church seeking to live out this great gospel unity that they have in Christ Jesus. How are we living it out in our context and the circumstances that we are in? If we broaden out a little bit, we have to be reminded that we're in the middle of this narrative, right, that is running through, that Luke is giving us an account of what is going on with Paul. And so we've seen over the last few weeks his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, leaving there his travels, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And and we know already, even at this point, if we've not read any further past this, what is uh, to come of Paul. We know that, right? He was told what would happen if he went to Jerusalem. And the the ending there was, was let it be, right? Let the will of the Lord be done was the, the broad decision between all of those who were present. And so Paul is now arrived in Jerusalem. That's where we find ourselves 
in this passage. And so we stop there uh, at the end of verse 26. And uh, Pastor Ken returning to the, uh, the pulpit next week, he'll uh, pick up as we move forward in the next few verses. But as we're here, Paul has come to Jerusalem, verse 17. And what we see is that he's going to meet with uh, James and all of the elders. And so we're going to break this uh, passage down. I would uh, first show you in verses 17 through 20a, the first part of 20, uh, that Paul is offering reports of God's grace and God is glorified. And the, the Jerusalem uh, elders are reporting to him what's happened there as well. All right? And so that's what we see. And then as we move forward, we'll see this present challenge and then this effort to preserve unity. All right? And so let's think first on these first few verses and the report of God's grace and what has happened. So the first thing we need to notice is it says um, <clears throat> when they had arrived in and to Jerusalem, it says the brothers received us gladly. You have to keep that in mind. Right? That's important to let that uh, loom in your mind as we continue forward in the passage. They're glad to see Paul. And uh, Luke is telling us that Paul and those who are with him, right? They're glad to see him. They're glad to receive him. Then it says, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders who were present. And so this does give the impression of a formal meeting. All the elders are there. This is some, uh, there's a formality that's going on here. This is not just a meeting casually. And so they're all together. And it says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so what's not mentioned here is the gift. Right? We know there was a, a, a gift taken and was possibly, I think Jonathan mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when he preached, uh, Part of what was uh, dictating, part of what Paul uh, was doing in his travels possibly was the gift that he had for Jerusalem, for the church there. And so that's not mentioned uh, in this passage. Uh, Luke doesn't uh, bring it up. But uh, there's a very strong possibility that that has been given uh, to the church as well during this report. And so after, um, after this, he relays this information. And then the thing that you really need to see in, uh, from these first few verses and focus on is that when they heard it, they glorified God. When they heard it, they glorified God. Over and over and over in Acts, it's, it's clear that, that what is driving this mission forward is the Lord. This is His mission. This is His doing. This is His work. This is Him fueling it, sustaining it, right? Providing uh, and moving it forward. I think that's even clear in the way that the whole book ends, right? This is... Uh, the way that the book of Acts ends, some people say it's kind of like a cliffhanger. The point is the gospel made it uh, to Rome, and it's going to go from there to the ends of the earth. And so, so the, the main character of the book is God. He is the main character of every book of the Bible. And so, uh, because this is his word, and it's declaring his glory. And so when they heard this, they glorified God. And then we see the challenge that will be presented uh, that kind of bridges these two parts of the passage together. So first, we see a report of what happens. You see, brother, how many thousands uh, there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And so they're reporting, this is what's going on here while you've been away, uh, that many, many, many have believed. And praise the Lord for that. And then you see that they move into the problem that has arisen right, at their current moment. 
So look at what it says next. They are all zealous for the law. They're all zealous for the law. This term zealous can be used often in Scripture positively. It's a good thing. And so we can see positive uses of the language uh, throughout Scripture. And we can see uh, this, uh, this same, the same term is spoken of, of God's zeal for Israel, for His people. Uh, but at the same time, the zeal, not, not from the Lord, but from people, the zeal from people can turn and become unhealthy. In fact, Paul uses the same term in Galatians 1, 13 through 14 when he speaks of his own zeal. And so there he says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to des- destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And so Paul, even speaking of his own persecution of the church, uses this word of this zeal that he had and uh, that, that led to his actions. And so, <clears throat> uh, so we can see that this is a good thing, but it can turn and become an unhealthy thing. It, it can turn into something that, that, takes, that goes too far. And this seems to be some of the concern that is present in our passage. It says they're zealous for the law. And so in light of that, what they do is they speak of this rumored concern, right? It's rumored concern. I don't think there's any indication in the text that James and the elders believe this about Paul. But what they're saying is, here's what's going on uh, and what's being rumored about you. If they had Twitter, they would say, this is what is all over Twitter about you, right? Hashtag Apostle Paul. Uh, and so th- this is what they, they, they would be talking about. And so they said, this is what the room reel is going. This is what people are saying. And the issue is this, right? The specific issue is <clears throat> that they have been told that you teach all of the Jews who are among the Gentiles, so all the dispersion, the Jews who are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children. So you, you're telling the Jewish people, among the Gentiles that you've ministered to, not to circumcise their children and to forsake Moses and the customs. And so, uh, Paul, uh, that's the rumor. And then the question is, is this accusation true? Is this accusation true about Paul? Uh, Has Paul himself abandoned his own Jewish heritage? And so, uh, I think there's a slide that will give you uh, several passages up there that I think will show us, even from the book of Acts, this is not true, right? This is not true. Paul, in, in fact, has not abandoned his own Jewish heritage, and he is not um, calling others to do the same. And so Acts 16.3, Paul has, uh, has Timothy circumcised. Uh, Acts 18.18, 18, Paul takes what seems to be, he takes a vow for sure, it seems to be a Nazarite vow, Paul observes the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Even in our current uh, passage, this, this run of Acts 20, 16, you can see that Paul was hurrying so that he could make it in time for the festival of Pentecost. And so Paul does not seem to be, uh, have abandoned his own uh, Jewish heritage and uh, as it has been said that he is encouraging others to do. What Paul has done and where the line is drawn for him is when the gospel is at stake. And that's clear. That any time that someone is calling uh, others to do anything that would compromise the gospel, then it's a no for him, right? And this is clear in Galatians uh, as he's uh, working through there and he's calling 
the church at Galatia uh, to, to repent. He's calling them back to gospel sanity. Why? Because uh, the Judaizers have come in and said that the Gentiles must become Jews to become Christians. And so the gospel is on the line, and he's not willing to compromise the gospel. Uh, and so we can see over and over, that's clear. What was established in Acts 15, which is uh, reaffirmed here in this passage, is just that, that Gentiles do not have to become Jews to become Christians. Right? This is not a burden that is going to be laid before them. And so Paul's not willing to compromise the gospel, but has he forsaken his Jewish heritage? The answer is no, he's not forsaken his Jewish heritage. And then you can see even further the, Paul, uh, the passage that uh, Bob read earlier. You can go back and, and look at that in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. You can see that Paul is concerned, right, to, uh, to become all things to all people as much as possible, right? Again, the line is the gospel. He wouldn't do anything that would compromise the gospel so that he might win some, so that he can winsomely take the gospel to others. So he's willing to lay down liberties, to, wait, to lay down things that he has a right to or, and, 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 and give those things up for the sake of sharing the gospel with others. And so uh, another area that you can look to is in Galatians again, and you can see in Galatians 2 where Paul rebukes Peter. He's rebuking Peter because Peter is not willing to lay down some of those uh, table uh, manners that he would have, table customs, to eat with Gentiles. And Paul is saying, hey, that's compromising the gospel at this point because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you not being willing to give up some of your customs for the sake of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ is compromising the gospel. And he rebukes Peter for that, right? And so I know this can be complex, but what we need to see is there is no indication that Paul has given up right, his, his heritage or that he's calling others to do it. But it is clear, and this is probably where the rumors come out of, is that anything that begins to compromise the gospel, Paul is not willing to move on that. And he is willing to lay down liberties and rights and abilities for the sake of the gospel. And so you can go and read uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 9, and 10. That's where uh, the passage that Paul, uh, Paul, you're Paul now too, Bob, uh, that Bob read from earlier in 1 Corinthians 9. But what is Paul doing there? He's, he's talking all about meat sacrifice to idols, and he's working through the complexities of that and, and how, how they should lay down rights and liberties and be willing to do that for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of brothers and sisters who have weaker consciences. And then in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he even talks about where he has given up his own rights at times. And I actually read from 1 Corinthians 9 when I preached a few weeks ago, right? Because he was talking about laying down his right to pay. He was doing that, laying that down for the sake of advancing the gospel because he was willing to give that up so that more may hear and it would not be a burden in front of them. And so this is Paul's MO. This is the way he operates. It's clear throughout Scripture as we look at it. And so, but here's the charge that has come against him, and this charge is, is that he's doing this, and then James and the, and the elders there are concerned about uh, the tension swelling. And so they say, hey, here's, here's what we think you should do. And so you pick up there in these next verses, and they lay this out for him. And so what do they say? They said, uh, they've been told this, and so here's what should be done. Verse 22, uh, they will certainly hear that you've come, and do, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. We're not exactly sure what vow they are. You can go, and I can point you to some 
uh, different resources if you'd like. There's probably four different main uh, um, thoughts on exactly what is going on, what kind of vow these uh, men are under. I'm more inclined to believe they're under some sort of Nazarite vow and it, and because it speaks of shaving their heads at the end. And he says, so take these men and purify yourself with them and pay their expenses. Now, this could have been significant expense for Paul to do this uh, and, and, and buying, paying for the sacrifices uh, that would have been uh, made uh, on his behalf and on the behalf of the others. And so this is not a light ask. But you'll see in the text, he doesn't contest this at all because once again, he's willing to lay things down for the sake of the gospel and for unity in the gospel. And so it's quite remarkable. And we should note that and not just blow right over it. And so <clears throat> this, is, this is somewhat of, this is a, this is a significant ask. And he says, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And so just another thing to note, Luke doesn't, I think we would understand too from Paul, he's not afraid to stand up, right? And say, it's not true to contest something. He doesn't do that here. And so he's willing to, 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 do, uh, to go uh, and seek unity uh, for the sake of the gospel. And so, and then we get this parenthetical in verse 25. That re-emphasizes, that re-emphasizes what we were told in Acts 15. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And so this is that re-emphasis of what was stated in Acts 15 when the Jerusalem Council came together to to decide, should, should Gentiles become Jews to become Christians? And the answer was no. And this is what they said should be the result. I think specifically uh, what most of this is connected to is probably much of the idolatry that their culture was involved in. Uh, much of temple prostitution, sacrificial systems uh, that, would, that would be happening uh, in the cultures. And so, so I think what they're doing is they're saying, hey, they need to be especially aware of what, it, what the uh, temptations are toward sin that they may be used to in their cultural context. I hope that makes sense. I think that's a lot of what they're getting at here when they say this. By the way, often it are, it are those who are outside of our context who can see clearer where the pitfalls and dangers are in our context than we can ourselves. Does that make sense? Often it's our brothers and sisters who are outside of our context who can see a little bit more clearly what the pitfalls and dangers are for us, the, the subtle, maybe respectable cultural sins that, that we can't see ourselves because we are in that culture. Uh, sociologist James Davison Hunter said, culture is powerful when it's not recognized <laughs> because we just think that's the way it is. And, and so we're just in the midst of that culture, just living in it, it's just the air we breathe and we don't even know. And so, so I think what they're doing here is saying, hey, but tell them to be especially aware of this danger that is around them, which would be to be involved in temple idolatry. Friends, we have to understand their context. Everybody did it. Every, I mean, in temples, in pagan temples, there were gathering halls. And it's like if you wanted to have a part of a community meal, you would go and take part of that in the gathering hall of the temple. It was just everywhere. Their culture was inundated with it. And by the way, so is our culture, inundated with idolatry. 
uh, that it can be very easy for us to be involved in and not even really recognize it. And so, so I think that's, that's much of what's happening here uh, and what they're calling them uh, to, to be aware of and they're, they're reiterating here. And then, verse 26, it says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and, um, and the offering presented for each one of them. And that's where, where our passage ends. And so we can see that Paul went and did as he told. And so I think their hope is, is that Paul's participation with these men who they uh, had among them who were under the vow, that Paul's participation with them would, would temper the concerns of the zealous group uh, and that this would, would quell things and calm things down, tensions that were rising. Now, brothers and sisters, we'll turn next week and we'll look and we'll see uh, what, what happened next, right? And we can read the next few passages, but that's not my task this morning. Uh, my task is to say, let's look at this and say, all right, in light of this, how are we instructed by God's word of what we see going on with Paul and uh, his companions and then the elders there in Jerusalem, and I, I, I think, as we said a moment ago, where we need to be aware and where we need to look this morning is how is it difficult for us to maintain, Ephesians 4 says, be eager to maintain the unity that you have in Christ Jesus. Be eager to do that, to, to, to want to do that, right? This language of vigilant about it. And so, so how in our context, we see what, what they're willing to do and how they're willing to, to seek to, to pursue and to maintain this unity. What about us? Are we aware? Are we fighting for this gospel unity that we have in Christ Jesus? Because as we began at the beginning of the sermon, look around this room, this is God's God's boast to the cosmos, right, is that, that he is doing something that nothing else can produce, which is making a new people in Christ Jesus from every nation, tribe, and tongue. People that he has redeemed and people that he has saved for his glory and making them not, not just as individuals, although they are saved as individuals, but bringing them together as a people and making them a, a whole people who are there for his glory. So for us, what challenges are present for us living out and living in light of this unity? This is tough. We live in the South. I know all of you aren't from the South, and I'm sorry about that, but, but I'm kidding. Um, but we live in the South, and so niceness is just common in the South, right? It just is. It's just common. It's a bless your heart, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just common here. And so, uh, but as I heard one pastor say, niceness is not gospel community. Niceness evaporates as quickly as everybody leaves the parking lot on Sunday morning. Smiles and friendly handshakes, those are, that's not gospel community. That's not the depth that we're talking about. That's not what Christ died on the cross uh, to, to, to procure, to, to make for himself a people. 
is for far more than that. And, and so I'll look to one thing that's been super helpful to me to think through this over the years. Martin Dever and Jamie Dunlop, in their book, Compelling Community, they emphasize two options for community in the church. Two options. The first option is gospel plus community. Gospel plus community. And the second one is just gospel community. It's gospel community. So let me talk to you about gospel plus community first. This is what comes most naturally to us. Gospel plus community. We recognize, hey, we are believers. We're, we're Christians, those who have been redeemed by Christ Jesus. And, and we are his people. And, and we long to fellowship with other Christians. But what comes naturally to us is gospel plus something else, community. It can be gospel plus our political allegiances and voting preferences. It can be gospel plus our educational choices for our children and for our families. It can be gospel plus socioeconomic status and demographics. And friends, we can break this demographics thing down pretty far. It could be gospel plus, well, we, I really just like being around other teenagers only, right? Other Christian teenagers only. The, the old people are boring. Or the old people can say, oh, those teenagers are rowdy. I'd rather just be around gospel old people who are quiet, right? And who are calm, which I'm with you, I'm becoming one of you, and I, I like hanging out with that too. That's why I didn't go to camp this past week. But, but there, there's, right, so, so we, could, we could really break that down. Or I only to be with, with young families, because we're a young family, and, and we really like to be around other young families. We need fellowship with young families. Or I only want to be with middle-aged families, or empty nesters, or singles, or professionals, or, or college and career age, and on and on we can go. We can just break this down, and there are all sorts of flavors of this that we can say, that's really what I like and what I would prefer to pursue. Gospel plus community, people who are like me, people who have the same hobbies as I have, people who have the same eating habits and lifestyle choices as I have, that's my people. Those are the people that we feel comfortable with. And all we're doing is we look just like the world, but we're creating Christian subcultures of the exact same community fault lines and division lines that the world has. There's nothing different about that from the world. We've just created a Christian version of it. Or we can pursue gospel community. And gospel community is a community that recognizes that there is one thing that has brought us together, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are a group of people who have recognized that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that that Savior is the one and only Christ Jesus who has come, lived the perfect life that we could not live, who died on the cross for our sins, was raised on the third day, has ascended to the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us and will return for us and that we have recognized that Jesus is Lord. That is the confession that has brought us together and there's nothing else in there that has brought us together. It's just the gospel that has brought us together as a people and is making us a people. See, prior before Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3.10 as he lays this out in Ephesians 2, right? In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he talks about how we have been saved uh, as a people, right? That we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God 
sent Christ Jesus. And we've been saved through faith, and it is not of ourselves. And so none of us can boast about it. And we're just talking about Ephesians 1 through 9 there. In verse 10, that we have been made new, we are created, we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works, that's verse 10. And then he moves from there and he begins to look even more broadly at the corporate dynamic of that. Because we can all read that very easily and we can think, yes, that's, I, this is my experience as a Christian, this is what I knew, I was dead in my trespasses and sin and God has saved me by his grace. And then he broadens this out corporately and he says, he, he is our peace and he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that is between us and there he's speaking specifically about Jew and Gentile and that Christ has broken that down and he is our peace and he has brought us together and he's made us a people and then Paul talks about this gospel mystery that he's been entrusted to to proclaim the Jew and Gentile in the first parts of uh, Ephesians 3 where there he says in 3.10 that the church is the manifold wisdom of God to all the cosmos. And so he doesn't say in there anywhere that it was Christ plus all these other things that brought us together, but it is only Jesus who has saved us, who has made us a people, and who has united us together. Therefore, this is the unity chapter 4 of Ephesians, that we're to be eager for and that we're to work for and that we're to long for. And, and, and he lays out in there what that's going to require of us. Gentleness, patience, love, right? bearing with one another, forgiving one another as you have complaint against each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And on and on and on we can go. And so, this is, this is who we are in Christ Jesus. This is our identity. This is what we've received. And now the Lord has called us to, to live this out together. Because we are a gospel people. Now, let's get really practical. How? How do we do this? Let me ask some questions. What's preventing gospel community in your life and in my life? What's preventing this? Just think about it. Is it time? You're always in a hurry. I'm in a hurry too much in my life. Too much. I heard someone say one time, love takes time, and time is something people who are in a hurry don't have. Right? We're in a hurry. We don't have the time. What's preventing, preventing you from, from, from living this out? How is it that the gospel has called you to this? We've, we've been talking about that. and enables you to do this. Right? You have to rest in Christ Jesus because your identity is secure in Him. I'm not looking to other people to, to get this affirmation and find my identity because this in Christ Jesus. This is what the world's doing. They're, they're looking to others and trying to establish themselves, find their identity, be established in that. But, but we don't have that. We rest in Christ. That's where our identity is. And, and He has come and served us, Philippians 2. Therefore, we can serve others. How can I put other people first and look out for other people? Who's going to look out for me? Jesus has already done that for you. 
He came and served to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you could be redeemed and be saved. And so, so you're secure in him. So, so, so maybe let's go at it this, this way. What are some barriers to this community in, in your life? Well, let me ask you this. What are you zealous for? What are you personally zealous for? Well, what kinds of things are you really passionate about and that, that you really like? Because these are the kinds of things that you're going to be tempted to, to put on the other side of a plus sign. Gospel plus this. That's what I'm looking for. Those things that you're passionate about that you really care about. If, if people interact with you on, on Sundays after church for several weeks, what are they going to say that you really care about? This stuff isn't fun, I know, but, but let's, let's, we really need to do this. Are they going to say that, man, Matt loves Jesus? Or are they going to say, man, Matt loves politics? Are they going to say, man, Matt loves Jesus? Or are they going to say, well, Matt really loves sports? Are they going to say, Matt loves Jesus? Or all Matt talks about is his kids. They're going to say, Matt loves Jesus. He loves the church. Or they're going to say, oh, Matt really loves his job. Can't get him to shut up about that. And his pursuit of that and his desire to advance. They're going to say that that, that Matt really loves Jesus or, or Matt loves cable network news. I cannot be charged of being guilty on that one. <laughs> so just ask these questions about yourself. What would people really say that, that, that you really care about and are passionate about and love? Is it Christ and his church? And, 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 and he cares about me and my growth and grace and holiness? Or is it other things? And therefore, could they possibly be walking away from conversations with you and say, I don't know that I could ever really get a deep connection with that person because I don't have kids. Or I'm not married. Or I'm not at that stage of life. Or, or I don't really know anything about politics. Or, you know what, I'm just not really that much into career advancement. Or on and on and on we could go about the things that we can get passionate about and really desire to build our community and our life around. And so, as we think forward, here's where this is tough. Because a lot of these things that we're zealous for and passionate for, they matter. Those things matter. And a lot of these things that we may have differing opinions on, we have liberty to have different opinions on them, but Romans 4, 5, 14, 5 says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's tough when you're talking to people about things that they're fully convinced in their mind about. But they are second and tertiary issues to where we can still disagree and have gospel unity around those things. And that's when it gets challenging. That's when it gets challenging to, to have gospel community in light of that. And so I, the question that we've got to ask ourselves often is, is this thing that I'm getting so passionate about that, that may be starting to divide a little bit 
of fellowship between others, does this issue compromise the gospel? Does this issue compromise the gospel? And I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, let's just ask it really plain and bluntly. Do you really think someone's going to go to hell over this issue? Because they don't eat like you do. Because they don't vote like you do. Because they don't, and on and on and on we can go. And you'd probably, no, absolutely not. But friends, we can be so divisive over some of these issues. And don't hear me saying, oh, Matt's really working at something specific. I didn't know our church struggled with this. I don't think our church is struggling with this in, a, in some major area. I just think God's word's addressing this right now. And we should all really take it to heart and say, am I struggling anywhere here? And am I on a trajectory that I don't want to be on right now? Am I, am I starting to do this to where on down the road I could be way far off from where I, from where I intended to be? And then my fellowship and my church life doesn't look anything like what I hoped it would look like. It looks nothing like the Bible. Because one small divergence over time is a gaping gap. And we'll look around like, wow, how did I get here? Friends, so what do we do to pursue this? What do we do? I, one more question. What would others outside of my context say? What would they say? And maybe ask them. And this could be, we're not just talking about cultural context. If you have, if you have the opportunity to talk to people in, in other cultures, brothers and sisters, great. But these things can happen not just church by church, but they can happen within this very room. We can just ask people who have different perspective than us and, and, and ask for help and input on things that we're passionate about and ask them, hey, could you love me enough to speak honestly? Do you think I elevate this too much in my life? That's a hard question to ask. And if they answer you honestly in love, thank them for doing it because that took courage to do. But how do we pursue this? How do we pursue this? Four things, and these four things do, they'll be on the slide, they, they do come from the book that I referenced earlier. So if you don't like most of what I said, don't blame that all on the book. Go, go and read it. But these four things come from Deborah and Dunlop, and I think they're very helpful. First, personal example, model it. Model it. The, 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 way, the way culture changes is, is, is one person at a time. And so think about what you're saying and think about your conversations and think about the implications of it and, and how others might be hearing it and think about what your priorities are as you're talking to brothers and sisters and before and after services and in base groups and on and on and on and just say, you know, what, what, am I, what message am I sending them? Am I sending them that I care most about Christ and His church or am I sending them the message I care about something else? And begin to model it. And begin to show care and love and desire for their growth and holiness and, and, and desire for, to see them uh, thrive in the gospel. Second, proclaim. Proclaim. We've got to proclaim the gospel often to each other. If this, is, if this is what's brought us together and the gospel is what's supposed to orient everything we do, we've got to hear it a lot. Because we have a lot of false gospels proclaimed to us all the time in our culture. 
Every billboard, magazine, movie, song, I mean, they're all contrary to God's word. And they and we are being shaped and molded and our hearts are being drawn out by those things constantly. And we constantly have to be corrected by God's word and, and see where we've parted to the right or to the left. And that's not going to happen if we're not proclaiming it to each other. So proclaim the gospel to each other. When someone's sharing with you about struggles that are going on in their life, how, how can you be thinking in your mind as they're sharing and be prayerful? How can I point them to the gospel in this situation? How can I call them to faithfulness in the midst of this really difficult situation in their marriage, in their parenting, in their work, in their singleness, whatever it is? How can I call them, hey, I know that's really tough, and that's where we're tempted to always stop. But, but how do we encourage them, you know, what does faithfulness to Jesus right now in your life look like tomorrow? And then the next day, and then the next day, to show the care and concern, to check in on them. Pray. Pray. Friends, we should pray for this. And, and, and if you say, wow, I think our church is doing pretty good in this, praise the Lord, I do too. But don't take that for granted. Pray that it would continue. There's a very real enemy who would love to see that just blow up and fall apart. And then we also have our own indwelling sins that we're still wrestling with. And we should pray and ask the Lord, create more and more of this culture. The Apostle Paul commends the church at Thessalonica for their love for one another. And then he prays that it would grow and abound. He prays that love would just grow and abound, that it would overflow. Let's pray for that. Fourth, patience. This is tough, right? We are not a very patient culture. But to be patient, we're, we're tempted. I'm trying so hard. I'm trying to model. I'm proclaiming. I'm praying. And it's just not happening. I don't know what these people's problem is. They're not getting on with it like they ought to. Right? We can become very impatient, very harsh and unloving and judgmental. Change takes time for all of us. A lot of times when we back out and we look at our own spiritual growth and we think about how long it took for us to, to get something, that we had to hear it over and over before it clicked, and, and on and on we can go, but we can be so impatient with others. We think we should just be able to say it, boom, they get it. It's just not how it works. So why does this matter? It matters because of where we began. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That this is God's boast to the nations. His people claiming his grace and his glory and growing in grace together. Friend, if you're here and you're not a believer and you've been listening to us talk about this, why are we talking about this? Because we care deeply about this. Because we believe the gospel is the greatest news of all. And we, you're surrounded by people who have come to recognize their need for that. And they've looked to Christ in faith and repentance and they've been saved and, and they recognize that, that they're not their own anymore, as the Apostle Paul would say elsewhere, because they've been bought with a price and that, that he has made us into a people for his glory. And so this morning, our greatest desire would be, as we focus on this and think about this, that you've just kind of been in a family conversation that you're hearing about how we want to live out what God has called us to and what he's doing in us. We want to work that out in our lives more and more. Our desire is that you would be a part 
of the church. That you would recognize that there is a God who made you, who loves you and sent his son for you. And he is calling to and making it available to you to be a part of the people that he's making for himself. A kind of community that the world longs for but can't create because it's always false, fragile, and hollow but that he's creating in Christ Jesus. And so maybe today the greatest thing for you would be to look to Christ for salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not just pass this by or take it for granted, but let us be reminded this morning that what we proclaim with our mouths should not be contradicted by what we display with our lives. And when we do, that is a great reproach on the gospel when we contradict it. Uh, We tell the world one thing and we show them another thing. And what we show them is, hey, we're just like you. We just created Christian versions of what you already have. That's a reproach on the gospel. But when the world looks and says, I don't know how in the world you got those people together and they really love each other, that is great commendation to the gospel because there's only one way that can happen, and that's through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it in our lives continue to make us into the people that you've called us to be. Help us to navigate difficult circumstances and situations prayerfully, humbly, graciously, and for your glory, just as we saw the church in Jerusalem seeking to do this morning in your word. Instruct us and give us what we need. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.